Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by David Priest, goalkeeper, columnist, media mogul, and by Daniel Story, a fount of knowledge from Football 365. So, to Rome. They can't, surely. They won't, will they? They mustn't. The problem is, it's never too early to panic where Liverpool are concerned. Do we need to worry, Dave? At 5-0, we didn't. At 5-1, probably not. At 5-2, then it's, it changes things a little bit, doesn't it? And I think um, it's a little different from when they were going to the Etihad with the, with the lead. Uh, they, they defended really well, obviously. Um, going to the Olympic Stadium now. Rome aren't going to make the same mistakes as they did last time. They, they kind of went out the game the same as they did with it when they were 3-0 down at Barcelona. Uh, 20 minutes, it's, it, it looks decent. They, they, they started the game quite well and then as soon as the goal went in, they, they need to readjust and they, they didn't do that. And that was a, the big mistake they made. But uh, it will be an interesting first 20 minutes and all that. Mm. They're always likely to score Liverpool. Is that going to be their saving grace? It is. And I think the way that Roma played in Liverpool is, is also their saving grace because the difference between this and the Barcelona tie for me is that the first leg of Roma and Barcelona was actually pretty tight, although Barcelona won comfortably. Um, Liverpool could have won by six or seven um, at Anfield. So I think, I think, I think I'm think i pretty sure that Liverpool will go through. Roma also played with this incredibly high defence and I can only imagine that Eusebio Di Francesco looked at the situation and thought that was the only way they could do it because watching from home, more than almost any other game I've seen in recent years, you can imagine people all over the country watching and saying, well, we could have worked this out. We could have seen you were going to get caught by Mohamed Salah if Alexander Konarov bombs up the pitch. Uh, so, and I, if, if that is the only way they can play, it, it, it has to be the way they play at home as well because it's how they beat Barcelona who, who didn't even try and attack. Mm. Um, and Liverpool will, I think. And, and in, in, in attacking, I think Liverpool will score, which makes it very difficult. If they looked at previous games and they, and they saw the game against Waffle and Javi Gracia, he did exactly the same. Went with five at the back, changed, uh, changed his formation to, to, to play Liverpool and it just seemed to play in their hands, you know, playing a high line, give more that space in behind. I think if you look back last season when they, they had that little stumble, they had that run of games where they went without a win, it was because a lot of teams denied them that space in behind. And okay, it's easier said than done when you've got a, a Liverpool side on, on form, uh, certainly a front three on form as, as they have. Mm -hmm. It's difficult, easier to say to stop them but uh, if you deny them that space it, it probably makes your job a little bit easier mm. The thing with Liverpool is that they're almost a team of spurts they score goals in big blocks yep. very quickly but equally they concede very quickly is that going to be an issue? 
It is if if they concede in the first ten minutes, without a doubt, um, because actually Edin Dzeko is a is a striker who does exactly the same. If he scores early in a game, you get the sense that he becomes has this feeling of untouchability, where he thinks mm. that every chance he gets, he's going to score, and you will get chances against Liverpool. Both Got a couple Liverpool. on Saturday. Didn't yeah, you? exactly. Uh, from open play and from especially from set pieces, you will get chances. Um, I just think there's a belief, a shared belief amongst those players that they won't to coin their tragic phrase from 2014, they won't let it slip because um, they've come too far in this competition and they've achieved too much against Manchester City, I think, to go out now. They, they will see Real Madrid in the final as their, you know, as their judgment day, not Rome. Um, mm. And I think their game management is better than it was last season. The shoes on the other foot now when it comes to atmosphere in stadiums. You know, they had, they had the advantage in Anfield in the last two rounds. Um, the Etihad wasn't an intimidating arena for them. Mm. They weren't there and be able to, uh, were able to, to employ their tactics really well without any pressure from the outside. You've seen the, the emotion, the outpouring emotion from the, uh, the Roma fans when they, when they beat Barcelona. Mm. It's going to be the same sort of atmosphere as well, so the pressure's going to be on them too. Mm. When you have a fixture like that with a lot of history attached to it, is that relevant? Yeah, I think it's just because it, it, it it's all, all encapsulated in sort of the, the atmosphere at the time. Uh, perhaps it's not in the players' minds as they go on the pitch, and it certainly won't be. Mm. But uh, you've got to take all the, the, the atmosphere and the circumstance around it. That it all comes into uh, to a big mix and ball. And uh, when it comes to fixtures, it's all those outf- outside influences can have an effect, like we're seeing in Anfield. The, w- yeah. the weird thing is that. Jurgen Klopp has actually used this idea of history and atmosphere to his own advantage. Mm. So it's very difficult for him then to turn around to those players and say, the history doesn't matter. Mm. Because actually he's, he, he's a manager perhaps more than any other in the Premier League who, who relies on inspiration and passion and motivation often through history. So this idea of grand European nights at Anfield that they've used to their advantage this season, it's very hard, I think, to then turn that off when the shoe's on the other foot. Mm. So... I, Look, Roma fans will make it a cauldron, um, but no Liverpool player worth their salt should be affected by that, or they, or they shouldn't be in a Champions League semi-final. Mm. Where are they, Liverpool? You know, there's some news broken this morning about um, Zelko Buvac, mm. um, you know, the brain, Klopp's assistant, not being with the team this weekend for the rest of the season. Mm. Liverpool are saying it's personal. There's a lot of speculation it could have been a typically titanic row between the two of them. Mm. Does that have any material effect on it? Klopp will certainly try and play it down as much as possible. Um, And let's be honest, if Liverpool didn't have a three-goal lead going to Rome, it would more likely make a lot more difference. If they don't even have to win there, then it would give off the impression that the wheels were coming off. Um, They've also drawn their last two Premier League games against the teams in 19th and 20th, which is not ideal. Um, it's certainly something Liverpool could do without in a in what is a massive week. They still go to Chelsea next weekend with top four not yet secured. Uh, so it's something they could obviously do without. And Liverpool would not be making these statements of compassionate leave and trying to smooth over the situation unless something had, you know, pretty volatile had gone on behind the scenes. So I, th- I think it's very unhelpful. Um, but Klopp is kind of the master of, of individual man management and player motivation. And he should have no issue in stressing to the players just how important it is they keep their mind on the job. Mm. Mm. What about um, the situation with uh, Roma? Who do you think their key players will be? Well, I think the strength lies in... uh, It's going to lie in their attacking uh, 
potency. I mean, if they're going to get anything out of this game, it's, it's you know, of course they've got to keep a clean sheet. But if they're going forward, uh, Edin Dzeko is, is going to be uh, play a big part. If there's been a weakness level that's it's, uh, at Liverpool, it's been uh, defending corners, defending crosses. That seems to have been rectified with uh, the improved performances of Karius through uh, Van Dijk's calm influence. But it's certainly going to be something that they're going to have to come up against. Mm. Conversely, let's, let's look at perhaps an unlikely match winner, tie winner, James Milner. Mm. Uh, first player in Champions League history to have nine assists in a, in a Champions League season. He really, and others have grabbed the attention, the Fab Three and everything else, but he's been the one I've looked at as a catalyst in, in this recent run. Yeah, and he, he's also uh, the absolute example to follow for the young players who have come through this season because he is a worker first and a player second and has no there is no shame attached to that in, in sometimes in modern football it feels like hard work isn't particularly sexy in a you know kind of skill culture but mm. he is hard work first um, and he is an, an absolute epitome of of the the hard-working professional mm. it's interesting to hear Jurgen Klopp say the beginning of last season, he had to persuade James Milner to play left back because he wanted he felt that he wanted to be more involved in play, he wanted to be more influential across play. He persuaded James Milner to play there, and Milner had more touches than any Premier League player last season mm-hmm. from left back. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a player who will constantly try and get involved, offensively and offensively. Um, but yeah, to me, it's just the example he sets. Uh, and in in ties like this, where you need calm heads. Jordan Henderson's fitness is still unconfirmed. They're going to be missing Alex Oxley Chamberlain. They're going to be missing Emre Chan. To have someone in midfield with that calm head mm. is absolutely vital. Um, and Milner is that. You know, he has this, this boring tag, but actually, there's nothing wrong with boring when you're going to not you're going to try and not lose a game by three goals. Boring will be perfect for, for Liverpool on Wednesday yeah. night. Are we seeing also a young player come of age, Trent Alexander Arnold? Um, had been targeted, I think City targeted him, didn't they? Mm. Um, just we're coming up to a World Cup. Do you think he should go to a World Cup? Well, I'll say this. If he does go to the World Cup, then he's not going to let anybody down. He's, he's still got a little bit of naivety around his uh, defensive game. But uh, with the ball and going forward, he's, uh, he's creative. He played midfield at the weekend, I think, mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it shows the, the confidence that uh, Klopp has him uh, with the ball at his feet. And I think that... <sighs> You're always going to get uh, Walker's always going to be the first choice because of uh, the way that England want to play and the, uh, his attacking intent as well. But if you want something that's a little bit more cultured, then he's certainly a great option. I think the other thing is playing in central midfield is hugely helpful because mm-hmm. Klopp has this desire for multifunctionality with his players. We've seen it. Joe Gomez has played different positions. Mm-hmm. Milner has. Oxlade Chamberlain has. Alexander Arnold now has. Emery Chan. Klopp it really enjoys that and to, likes to develop Latin players. And we've also seen with Gareth Southgate, one of the most surprising things I think about his England reign is how um, prepared he has been to try players in different positions. And we saw that with, with Walker earlier this year when he played Trippier as a right wing-back and mm. Walker as a, as a centre-back. He, he showed Pep the way in that, mm. in that regard, which is very surprising. So being able to play that dual role if you're only ever going to be a squad player, which I think he probably is if he goes to, to Russia is hugely helpful because it gives Southgate options in different positions. So if he can play central midfield for the last two or three games of the Premier League season, Wells plays well against Chelsea, I think he's got a much better chance than he had. Mm. And obviously, Oxlade-Chamberlain and Alana, their fitness is 
create space in midfield in that squad now. Yeah. With Trent Alexander-Arnold, the thing that strikes me about him is he's the epitome of the homegrown player. Someone who's, although young, getting involved in social programmes, like you know the food bank programme at Liverpool, which is fantastic. Mm. Does that matter? Do you feel it a bit more when you're a homegrown player? Yeah, of course. I mean, he, he, on the flip side of that, you can feel the pressures because it, it means so much to you. Um, if you if you go into games and it's you're living your dream, sometimes it can, it can be proved too much with players. We, we've seen that. But with him, he seems to have a very level head. He's it doesn't all went smooth uh, in his performances so far, but you see in the interviews that he's he's done uh, after these performances, he's he he doesn't seem to let things get him down too much, and he's uh, like I say he's pretty level-headed, and that says we go with uh, with James Milner. That's exactly what you need. You don't get somebody who's getting too emotional and uh, getting too uh, t tied up in the occasion. Mm. Robert Firmino, new five-year contract. Mm. Roundabout is going to have to get by on £180,000 a week. Um, does those sort of contract extensions, do they really mean anything? Or is it just to basically Liverpool projecting their investment? I think that's exactly what it is. And we saw it with, with Luis Suarez. And to my mind, without fueling unnecessary fires, Suarez was a really interesting point here because I think he's 32 now. I think if Barcelona are looking for a a centre forward who works and works and works and harries defenders and creates spaces for the wide forwards either side of him, Firmino would probably be top of their list mm. um, when they go looking for a replacement. And, and the two might well be related. Getting him tied down now is a, when Liverpool are in such good form and everyone's in a great place, is a very good idea mm. because I think there's a danger of overlooking just how good he's been this season. And it's no coincidence that Salah has flourished given the, the work that, that Firmino is doing for him. Klopp's even said that. He said we would have been able to relieve some of the pressure on Salah to track back because Firmino does one, one and a half jobs. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think he's, I think he's phenomenal. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the reason they've, they've clearly tied him down because they want to keep him, but this is also about revenue maximisation. This is if he leaves, well, we sold Coutinho for £140 million. We think Firmino is more important, yeah. and, and of course they, they, they keep Firmino happy and hopefully keep him in the form that he's he's playing now. But also it says something to the rest of the players as well. Okay, they, they might go on and, and win the Champions League this year, but to make a challenge for the Premier League next season, they're going to have to keep this core of players together. And mm -hmm. and by doing that, by tying them up, send a message to everyone else saying, "Well, we mean business." Yeah, because the football food chain is such that someone like Salah will now be being looked at by. Real Madrid. I, I spoke last week to a, um, a senior scout in one of the top European clubs and his view was that Salah would be the perfect target for Real Madrid this summer simply because he sees that there's a state of flux there, the old BBC combination mm. with you know Bale and Benzema and, and Cristiano Ronaldo is probably going to split up. So that's the sort of pressure that Liverpool are going to have to deal with in the marketplace. They are, but I think also you know what Coutinho uh, the Coutinho move shows is that uh, they're in control. Klopp's in control. Uh, he obviously see, looked ahead and seen they could, they could there was a life without Coutinho, and, and he's been proved right. But also, I, th I still think he's bloody minded enough to, like I said, if he to ch if he's going to chance with Premier League to keep these players together. And what's more importantly, not just about the uh, the extension to Firmino's, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the summer, what faces come in. And, uh, and if that proves to someone like Salah that it's worth sticking around. The, the best thing for Liverpool is, was, was Neymar's £200 million move because it means they can look at it and go, well, 
Klopp could quite easily mm. say to Real Madrid in the first day of negotiations, well, who's played better this season? Salah, by a long way. So if you paid 200 million for Neymar last summer, why would you not be paying 250 million for Salah this summer? So making it that silly gives Klopp a very easy bargaining chip to scare away all but the richest suitors. Whether yeah. it will scare them off, I don't know. But I think they'll probably keep him for at least another season. No, and I think Neymar might be key in that situation as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. going from Paris Saint-Germain there. He might go there, mightn't yeah. he? Mm -hmm. With Real Madrid, OK, they've got the advantage over Bayern after that first leg. Do you expect them to just do the job, complete it? Yes, and, and no matter how, how the game goes, you, you know, whether Bayern you know, get, grab themselves a couple of early goals, you still expect them to, to pull through somehow, anyhow. Um, they never, you wouldn't bet against them, and more importantly, they wouldn't bet against themselves. Whatever situation they're in, they have the confidence and the ability, because they're all world-class class players, obviously, but they've been through it so many times and rescued themselves so many times that you, you think that if, even if things go against them, they'll, they'll still go through. Mm. Do you make them favourites for the whole thing? Uh, yes, I think they are, simply because there's still a slight question mark over Zidane's long-term reputation about whether he's kind of managed to bottle lightning at the Bernabeu, but they've been through this situation so many times. And the one question mark we have over Klopp, and you know, let's not put them in the final for a certain yet, but what, the, the big question over Klopp is his finals record. Um, that, and that will both be an issue if they play Bayern Munich against Jupp Heynckes, who he's struggled against before and lost in the Champions League mm -hmm. final against before, and also against Real Madrid. Um, so, yeah, I would make them favourites. They are a team that somehow manages to get things done against, against all odds, sounds very charitable to the second richest club in the world, but um, <laughs> in every situation they pull through. Uh, and they are a team of finals, that is, that is for sure. So yes, I would make them favourites. Let's be honest, anybody outside of Rome or, or Munich would want to see the Liverpool and Madrid final. Yeah, yeah it'd be a great occasion mm. and nothing else, won't yeah. it? Mm. And with Madrid, let's, let's switch across the city, Atletico. Um, that performance at Arsenal summed up everything about Atletico, but also everything about Arsenal, didn't it? We're not going to get a, a, a fairy tale farewell for Mr Wenger, are we? No, and uh, as well as they played, they, they, they managed the game well and uh, of course they had a bit of luck with the, with the sending off, but I know that Arsene Wenger said that it was the worst possible result they could have had and it's not, it wasn't even about result, it's about the, the manner and how the result came about. Mm. And I think that going into this game, you, you're not going to give them much of a chance. I mean, I don't know whether uh, you know, Costa's going to play any part mm. in this. You know, it, he could have quite easily, you know, made made even more. Of a he would love it, wouldn't he? Oh, not like he liked nothing more, like nothing more. But it's um, it, it's kind of all set up for him to to come on and play the villain of the piece in, in Arsenal's terms. Yeah, Simeone, is he exactly what Arsenal need? But is exactly of the character that ensures that they won't get him. I think that's absolutely right. I think they he would be the perfect kind of hard reset for Arsenal. He would pay very little attention to uh, those maybe ex-pros who might say, you know, don't damage the legacy, don't change things too much. He would provide that hard read set. He would make Arsenal unlikable. Uh, and when you are not within the financial elite, which Arsenal are not anymore at the very top end, being hard to like can often mean being hard to beat. Um, he is an unsavoury character. He is a spiky character, but Arsenal have, it's exactly what Arsenal have lapsed. Mm. They've been too likeable in recent years and that's been the way they've been too easy to beat. So, yeah, I don't think he will get the job. I'm not even sure if he would want the job. Um, but he would certainly, certainly change Arsenal and 
and at the moment, it's hard to see how change wouldn't be for the better. Mm. You basically go in there, the new guy, and, and blow the whole thing up, haven't you? <laughs> there is that, yeah. And, and I know that Arsenal fans, and not even just Arsenal fans, I think even anybody who's uh, just a football fan gets frustrated with the way Arsenal defend. The, the, mm. the, that goal that they give away, Monreal playing uh, playing everyone on side, Koscielny's fluff clearance. Um, it's it's sort of uh, it's, it's endemic of, of what happens. It's 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 Arsenal over the last sort of last ten years, and I think um, you're right. Go, if if Simeone goes in there, it could go back to the old boring, boring Arsenal of George Graham era. Mm. But have have Arsenal fans become so spoilt that that wouldn't be good enough? Winning that way would not be good enough for them. I wonder if that would be the case. Mm. What about uh, you've got Ospina playing in goal at the moment? Do you understand that? Um, I don't understand it. I mean, it's I don't know whether the checks been coming the. No, he's, I think day. it's a strange one in that he he effectively has chosen to stick with his prin principles and Wenger's mm. a very principled man to say, well, you are my cup goalkeeper, but it doesn't matter anymore about pleasing people, does yeah. it? He's leaving at the end of the season, so mm. surely for once, uh, prioritising. The best. I mean, Jack's not in brilliant form this season, but he's a better goalkeeper than Ospina, isn't he? He is. I mean, and you see the the, the winning goal yesterday. It was. It's not a clear error, but it's it's one you'd you'd think that um, a keeper of his stature would be making. It's it's a small technical detail where he ends up diving off his right foot instead of his left, and you know that makes the the difference in those inches. That's that's need to save it, and it's just small things like that. That's like you said. Czech hasn't been playing well at all this season. Mm. Uh, you know, he's perhaps on a. On a, on a decline now, but still, you like him in those situations, like like we talked about before about uh, about temperament, to, to mm. be that common mm. figure. Mm. As goalkeeping, you know, as we talked about in the past, is, is such a distinctive position. It has its own culture. There's also a lot of talk at the moment about Hugo Lloris at Spurs, and whether or not he's coming to the end of his shelf life. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say that he's he's not having a great season. I think anything beyond that is, uh, you know, we'd have to wait and see till next year. I think over the course of his time, it's it Spurs. He's changed his game slightly. He's a very proactive goalkeeper. He gets himself involved in a lot of situations that other goalkeepers wouldn't. So by that token, you're going to see uh, or make decisions that that maybe aren't the the best ones or or work out to be the best ones anyway. Mm. Um, I think that this season, that those uh, those mistakes that have in 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 past seasons haven't gone on to to become anything else, have kind of put doubts into his head. So we take the Manchester City game for example, the long ball by Vincent Company to Jesus, um, it was right in his path. There's no way that Lloris should come for it, but because he, he travels a long way and these mistakes that he's made in the past, the doubts are there. So when the next ball is played forward. He thinks he's got to come for the ball, and he ends up giving a uh, giving a penalty away. And it's it's these little doubts that are in inside his mind that can uh, mean death to a goalkeeper. Because once those death uh, those doubts come in, that's that thinking time that makes the difference between a right decision and a bad decision. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of retrospective talk that David De Gea was Ferguson's best signing, mm -hmm. and you know he's pretty much proving that theory on a fairly regular basis. Um, I found it interesting that the human chemistry yesterday between Fergie and Wenger. Mm. It's almost, we've had the funeral announcement and he's now lying in state, isn't he, Wenger? Yeah. Um, is he, are people being nice to him now simply because he's not a threat anymore? 
I think that's one reason. I think there is also an element that, like Ferguson himself, Wenger represents something um, anachronistic, some uh, you know, an example of football that we probably never will see before. Um, I don't think it's ludicrous to say that we might never see another 20-year reign. Um, not the top level, just because of the... You know, the pressures Pep Guardiola has had a sabbatical, Luis Enrique has had a sabbatical, to continue going at that top level. And you might consider that Wenger hasn't done that for the last few years, but um, I don't think we'll see that again. So I think that's partly it. Um, I think there's also a, um, an assessment from Ferguson that Wenger for a long time fueled Manchester United's own mm. success because he kept going... He kept Manchester United going and he kept Ferguson motivated by providing that challenge over a period of time where if, if Arsenal hadn't done so, Manchester United would have walked three or four different other title races and it would have become quite stale in the Premier League. So I think there is a shared, between them, there's a shared admiration of how they pushed each other during that period, certainly on Ferguson's part. I thought it was interesting that Mourinho was part of those discussions having, you know, let's, Mourinho is no stranger to being two-faced, but the way he was so... Um, so effusive in his praise Gushing, before the game. Yeah. Exactly, he was. Um, having been, you know, the antidote for that over the past few years was, to be honest, nice to see because if it had been any other way, if it had just been Ferguson doing it, it would have felt quite stilted and quite awkward. So, yeah, I actually thought it was a it was a really nice thing to do. I, I was I was surprised by it as well, which is always a good thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's more about how how they fueled each other in their joint rivalry rather than. Um, a you know a kind of um, a gratitude that he's leaving because I think there are a number of elite clubs in the Premier League who would be quite happy to see Wenger stay. Mm. I, I think that's the, the, the difference between the Wenger and Ferguson, Wenger and uh, Wenger and Mourinho uh, rivalry is that the Ferguson and Wenger rivalry was a real one. It was genuine. You could see that. Um, the, the emotion was natural where you think with with Mourinho it's it's all a little bit pantomime and a little bit steered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he is doing what he set out to do at United, isn't he? Yeah. They're gonna finish second by the look of things. Okay, it's not been the great trophy winning season that maybe people envisaged. We give him a lot of stick on here. Is it time maybe we redress the balance and, and reflected on how well he's done? Just looking at something this morning, I think uh, since February, I think he's beaten every other top six side. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, when it comes to the big games, these big games, he's, he's definitely doing something right. Mm -hmm. The big problem that everyone's got is because he's he not doing it in the Manchester United way. And, and of course, there's the, the Guardiola aspect as well, that they've just run away with it this season. Mm -hmm. And hopefully next year, um, not just Manchester United, but other teams can step on the plate and be a bit more to, to challenge City because I think for a long time uh, teams have just sort of um, they've just sat off them and and they're beaten before they go out there as well. So it's it's about teams and more than just Mourinho changing. It's about other teams changing towards Man City and and, and challenging them. Mm, talk about teams being beaten before before they go out there. West Ham yesterday against mm. City. That, to me, had the echoes of a team which could quite easily still go down. Yeah, they were dreadful. It's the, it's the ninth time in 21 league games under Moyes they conceded three or more goals as well. So his, this idea that he was going to come in and shore up the defence after Slavin Bilic's mm. defensive... Is it 67 goals in 35 games? That, I mean, it's, it's, it's shambolic. And 
this, let's we forget, comes off the back of West Ham making it fairly clear through media leaks that they see Moyes as the answer next season, not only as manager, but also with increased responsibility for transfers, which over the last few years, certainly since leaving Everton, has not been his forte. Um, it astonishes me. I, I thought that they would thank Moyes for his job, for taking them away from relegation and say, thanks for doing what you've done. There will be a payoff because we gave you a two-year deal, but we are going to look forward and we've got a whole summer to do that. I'm amazed that they are sticking with this plan. Um, and yeah, there seems to be an acceptance of defeat almost as soon as West Ham can see the first goal of the game or the first pass goes astray in a game, heads go down. And one summer of transfer activity will not change that um, because they bought six or seven players last summer and it didn't change it. So I, I think they're in a, a huge mess if they if they believe that Moyes is, is seriously the answer to sort out both the defence and also the, the off-field problems. Mm. The lack of intensity in, the, in their player it was, it was shocking, really. And... We've seen it a few times a season where I think that teams, when they come up against City, you can see the tactics they're trying to employ. They're going to set their sit back. They, they, they don't want them to play through them. They don't want to play in behind them. So they try and sit off them. But players just, especially with West Ham yesterday, at uh, the weekend, they, it seems as if they, they take things far too literally and they, they just give every Manchester City player a free pass to do what they want. There's no pressure on them at all. And it... If I was a West Ham fan, I'd, I would much rather they went out there, they went 11 v 11, man v man, uh, and, and just uh, pressed the life out of them. And it's, it's not, it wouldn't be rocket science, but it, it would make it competitive. And for the fans, that's what they want. They want to see the, their team competing. And at least if they're not going to uh, trouble at the other end, at least trouble the, the, the opposition. So it makes it difficult for them because they, did not do that at mm. all. Because there's something about that club that doesn't smell right. You've got obviously the controversy about the new stadium, um, which is you know patently not a football stadium. You've got unrest amongst the fans. You've got suspicion of the board, and you've got players who, frankly, are pretty feckless. All that combined, are you in a situation where something really radical has to change before they get better? I'm not so sure. I think. <sighs> As far as the stadium goes, you know, opposition teams don't seem to have a problem playing there. Mm. So I think any excuse from the from uh, West Ham players saying that they're still getting used to it. I mean, it took all it take uh, Tottenham four or five games mm -hmm. to to sort of rid themselves of their Wembley curse. Um, it's it's got nothing to do with the stadium. Okay, it's it's you know it's it's not a great stadium to watch football. I'd imagine on the pitch because the it's the wide expanse around the pitches. It's not great to play on it either. Like I said, it, it doesn't make a difference to the opposition. Mm. The, the, to my mind, West Ham are a perfect case of what happens when you um, allow supporters to feel like they've been misled. Um, they feel that they the move was, if not forced upon them, then certainly sold with bells and whistles that they haven't seen. Um, there have been promises made on not necessarily the amount of investment, but the type of players that the club will look to attract and the type of football they look, look to play. Um, and it's not a place as a home supporter that you look forward to going to on a Saturday afternoon. So when you're travelling 40 minutes, an hour, more than you were before to go and see that football, there has to be a motivation and there has to be a motivation to feel like the club is moving in the right direction. At the moment, they feel like they're constantly tripping over themselves. And as I say, I don't see how a summer, particularly if they're sticking with this strategy that they, they seem to be, I don't see how a summer changes that at all. Um, and I don't really see 
who will take the lead in it. Because you're right, it doesn't feel like the owners are taking the lead. It certainly doesn't feel like the players are taking the lead. And the fans are at a point where they're saying, well, why should we take the lead now? It's not our job. We pay to watch our football. We shouldn't have to feel like we're the ones spurring this club forwards. Mm. What, what about the situation at Southampton, Dave? You know, a lot of whispers and moans behind hands down there as well. Um, but they had a huge win at the weekend against Bournemouth. Have they got anything within them to get out of this? Looking at the rest of the games this season, you'd probably say no, but it's uh, it's pressure time, and uh, people either wilt or the or the the stand up and be counted. And if that's going to happen to them, uh, that that's exactly what they need. But uh, defensively, I think that yeah, we've talked about West Ham and in some games, West Ham, you know, when, when you know if Winston Reid's in there and they're not relying on two uh, mid thirty year old uh, full backs to see them through games. Yeah. The, uh, Ever, Ever, by the way, is the epitome of, re of a recruitment strategy that's just blown up, isn't it? Well, uh, 36. Uh, of course, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's short term. They, they, they needed something to, to uh, some experience brought and he thought he'd, he would add that and it would s sort of stiffen them up a bit defensively. But going back to Southampton, mm. it's, that's their huge problem. Uh, they just can't defend. And they haven't defended all, all season. And um, uh, looking back at those games, you, you wouldn't think that uh, they'd be staying up. The, the, the interesting thing about Southampton is their attack has been pretty shoddy this season mm. in terms of conversion rates and chance creation. Stuff. That has actually improved under Mark Hughes. Um, they obviously let Leeds slip. They scored twice against Arsenal, scored twice against Chelsea, scored twice again at the weekend. Um, that has improved. Um, I do think it's probably too little too late, but it, it's, it's, it must be so frustrating as a Southampton supporter to see someone like Dusan Tadic, who the only Premier League player score more than once this weekend, the only Premier League player create five chances or more this weekend. And he has been, as we said about West Ham, he's been feckless all season. Um, he just hasn't turned up. And if you're a Southampton supporter, you, you're obviously happy with that win, but it, it must be incredibly frustrating to think, we've known you can do this for so long. Why does it have to take... Um, everything being must-win and everything being on the line to produce a, a performance when you're you're paid to do that every week. It's mm. so frustrating. I suppose it's worth mentioning Alex McCarthy. Uh, he hasn't played a lot of football the last few years and coming in into the side for, for Fraser Forst, he's, uh, I think he's done exceptionally well uh, mm. in the circumstances and, and on Saturday producing a brilliant, brilliant save to, to ensure they got the three points. Mm. How difficult is it as a goalkeeper when you're number two and so by definition you don't get regular football to actually come in and try and take your chance? I think the more experience you are, it helps simply because you're coming in and just do the job you're asked rather than coming in and trying to impress. Younger keepers might come in and, and, and manufacture situations, uh, come and deal with crosses that ordinarily they wouldn't deal with just because they want to impress. And I think um, he's getting to that age now. He, he's... He hasn't played a great deal of games for for his age, but he's got experience. You know, he's moved from a few clubs, um, and and he's taking his chance now. And I think that, uh, like I said, it, it's important that you just stick to to what you've got to do and, and don't try and manufacture situations. Mm. Southampton got Everton. Um, what do you make of what's been going on there? You know, Sam is saying, well, you know, we've had thirty points under me. You know, great compared to the rest. The fans aren't having him. What's going to end up with that one? I think it's similar to West Ham in that I think supporters feel like they've been misled and I feel that 
they feel that they appointed a firefighter when there was no fire. Um, Allardyce was appointed with Everton 13th in the Premier League under no serious threat of relegation. Mm. Even under Koeman, we suspected they had far too much to go down and that, so it would have proven, I think, although it wouldn't have been a good season. Um, and I feel Everton fans believe that Allardyce is taking the team one step forward, but in effect two steps back because he's, he's railing back the football. I've heard that key players are not particularly enamoured with his demands and with his kind of self-promotion in the media. Um, to me, to my mind, Allardyce was given a choice when it went to Everton. This was his, basically, with no disrespect to Newcastle, this was his biggest club opportunity of his career and probably one of the last. So he had the, he had the chance to either reinvent himself and show that he'd been misinterpreted all, you know, all his career and this idea of I'd be more suited to managing Real Madrid and Inter <laughs> would have some more weight than it did or he would just carry on doing the same and, and he's carried on doing the same. Everton fans believe, despite a pretty good record, it should be said, that he's turned them into a small club fighting above their weight rather than a club that has ambitions of being a top six team and if, if he's right that he's been told he's got next season as well and he's going to be able to bring in some of his own players then they will be a very interesting club to watch this summer mm, especially when you know we, we're reading um there's some doubts about Wayne Rooney's future came in did really well at the start has tailed off somewhat um that would be a huge admission of failure on behalf of both the club and the individual player, wouldn't it, if he had to go? I think I think Everton got blinded by the light with that mm. transfer. I think they saw it as this local boy coming home to do good and it, it had this nice Hollywood ending, but the reality was that Rooney was not at Ever even Everton's level for maybe 18 months before he joined them. Um, and he's... He took a huge wage cut, but he's still on, I think, £160,000 a week. He's still their highest paid player. Um, he's not the only one, by any means. Gilfie Sigurdsson's transfer hasn't worked out. David Klassen's been a disaster. Mm. There are, Ashley Williams has not worked. Michael Keane has struggled. So this is a collective failure, not a Wayne Rooney failure. But if they can address that and reinvest the, trans, you know, reinvest the wages, then it's probably the best solution. Having made a mistake, the worst thing you can do is persevere with it just because you think it looks bad if you, if you, if you address it. And, mm. Where do you sure. see him ending up? China or the States, they're the logical ones, aren't they? Yeah, possibly. I, I, you'd wonder who would, uh, who would take a chance on the, in, in the Premier League. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, you're right what you said there about uh, the recruitment. You think that with the right players around him, um, things could have been different, but he's been put in a situation now where he feels like he has to do everything again. He has to be sort of sport billy and, and, mm -hmm. and, and try and, try and uh, you know, right everyone's wrongs instead of just doing the job that he's there to do. And I think that moving around these different positions he's played as well, it, it doesn't help them either. It, mm. we, we actually thought that Allardyce would be almost Wayne Rooney's saviour, having played pretty well and it slightly tailed off before Koeman was mm. sacked. We actually thought Allardyce was the perfect manager in that he'd, he'd previously said as England manager, I can't tell where, Wayne Rooney where to play. Actually, Allardyce, one of the, the biggest moves he has made is to move Wayne Rooney from centre stage, which is a huge surprise and, and must make Rooney think that if the manager does change in the summer, he's going to spend a lot of time on the bench next season, I'd have thought. Mm. Talking of managers changing in the summer, what do you think the odds are of Claude Puel surviving at Leicester? Well, by all accounts, there's not, not a great chance of him still being there. I think um, 
It's a strange situation that uh, Leicester find themselves in. They're, they're pretty comfortable in the league. They're, they're going to finish top eight twice in, the, in three seasons. Yeah, only for, for the first time there in, in their history. In, I've seen them a couple of times this season. They are a good side. And perhaps... Uh, maybe just thinking too much that they, they should be pushing for a top six, but they're certainly deserving of where they are now. And, and all the way through the side, you know, they managed to keep Mares there, and and even though he, he, he's maybe he's not hundred uh, percent happy with with, uh, with still being in that situation, he's still being contributing to the side, and mm. and I think all the way through the, the, the their team, not just the team, the squad, they've got a decent squad now, and I think they, um, I I I feel to see that anybody would get a better out of this side than Puel. Uh, we we've seen that in. Um, at Southampton previously, mm -hmm. you know, he got a good tune out of them, and it was uh, but feel to keep his job. But is the common denominator in Southampton and Leicester the alienation mm. of senior players? That's the accusation. Certainly, the the word is that several key players at Leicester, as at Southampton, felt that his personality was too abrasive and that his training methods were too demanding, which speaks of a almost as one of our archetypal English firefighters in that he goes in changes things, you know, ruffles a few feathers, gets results initially, and then they tail off. Um, I think Leicester are in a, or probably a unique position in terms of football over the last decade across the world, in that they had this remarkable 18-month period of unprecedented and unthinkable success. And everything from now on becomes a fairly futile and forlorn chase to follow that up, because they never will. Um, you can look at that two ways. You can either think, well, we should settle for our lot and therefore a manager like Puel might be perfect. Or you can think, well, if the squad's as good as it is, we're probably never going to go down. So why not gamble? Why not mm. try and get Roberto Mancini? Why not try and get a um, maybe a sexier name or certainly someone playing sexier football than, than Puel has? But it's a tough job next season because Riyad Mahrez, I think, will leave. Jamie Vardy will be targeted again. Wilfred and Didi will probably be targeted yeah. again. Harry Maguire is being taught with a big money move out of the club. So whilst I don't think all those things will happen, suddenly you look at that squad and think, well, actually top half's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a very difficult situation. But, but by all accounts, Puel has burned a number of bridges with key players. And whether you like it or not, keeping those valuable assets happy, those key players happy, has become an increasingly large part of management. Mm. Yeah, management's all about making the right decision at the right time. Stephen Gerrard, you see a lot of Scottish football, Dave. If you're in his position, would you go to Rangers? Um, it depends what I wanted. Um, if I wanted just the pure experience of, uh, of management at a, at a big club like Rangers, uh, I'd, I'd put a lot of pressure on myself uh, to go there. Um, simply because it's you, you, you're not just going to be dealing with um, coaching, you're not just going to deal with players. You know what Rangers and Celtic are like. It, it, there's a whole life outside of that as well that you've got to deal with. And the club itself, politically, is split down the middle, isn't it? Well, that's it. I mean, the, the ownership sort of um, uh, Dave King. He's uh, he hasn't taken up his option yet of uh, of his majority sh shareholding. So that's still got to be decided. But also, I mean, there's a lot of people saying that uh, Steve George's got. A, it's quite a simple job from because all he's got to go up there is challenge Celtic. There's so much more to it than that. Uh, a good thing about what's happened since uh, Rangers uh, were demoted, uh, Aberdeen took the you know took the reins in second place. Um, they have been strong. 
will probably finish second this this season. Hibs are resurgent under Neil Lennon. Um, if Hearts can sort out their uh, their uh, away form, um, they can also um, uh, challenge at the top and certainly challenge Rangers. Unless he's got the funds there to change things, and he knows that there's no not going to be hindrance from behind the scenes, he's got a, he's got a little bit of a chance. But he's got a hell of a long way to go to catch uh, Celtic. Mm, because they, having watched him work at Liverpool with the under 18s, there is that sense of continuity at work there. That you know, two or three years time, you can see him moving up and maybe assisting Klopp and then taking over at the end of Klopp's usual seven years. Um, if that's the case, could Gerard do himself career damage by going to the, a club like Rangers, which is inherently, as David said, uncertain? Yeah, he, he absolutely could. I mean, there's, there's two ways of looking at that, and, and Gerald will be doing exactly that. His first is to say, well, if I can succeed there, I can succeed anywhere, and more importantly, I can show club owners that I can succeed anywhere. Um, but these sort of jobs eat up managers if you're not careful. Gerard at the moment will retain a huge amount of goodwill in the game because of what he was as a player and because by all accounts he's a, a very motivational and, and positive academy coach. But there's a mass, there's a world of difference between being able to work slightly under the radar, even if you're Steven Gerrard as an academy coach, than there is being the main man at Rangers. Um, it is a, a huge gamble. Um, and... Gerard should well know that this won't be the first offer that comes along. If he's good at what he does, he retains enough goodwill that a better offer might well come along soon. And I personally think he should wait for that. Yeah. Some questions from the listeners and the viewers. Uh, running out of time, so we need to sort of uh, go through these quite quickly. Mark Lynch asks, and it's one for you, Dave. Why is every mistake Joe Hart makes analysed and analysed again and reported as awful? Yet Jack Butland's mistakes are just forgotten as nothing. I, th I think this is probably a case of that Jack Butland's still a lot of credit. Um, he, he's still young. Um, I think he, he's probably given a little bit more leeway with, with regards to the mistakes. Where with Joe, I think you're either Joe half funny or not, and I think and if you're not, you're less likely to, to to give him any any credit for anything good that he he does, like the game against Arsenal. But those mistakes that he's made, it's um, sort of been over a longer period of time as well. And I think not to knock somebody like Jack Butland too much at his age before that he's had any sort of England career anyway, I think uh, it would be a little bit too harsh to put him under the microscope too much. OK. Um, Danny Ackle, uh, Nichols, um, Daniel, uh, if Brendan Rodgers doesn't get the Arsenal job, where do, you, where do we think that he should pitch up next? I think he should pitch up at a club like Southampton um, and assuming they stay up. Um, a Premier League club, maybe even a West Ham, that's slightly fallen on hard times and that he can use his clear attributes of motivation and you know, morale to get everything pushing in the right direction, which can be very, very powerful. Um, my, my only issue is I don't think he will see the, the same. I think he has bigger ideas than that. Um, and not just in terms of his own ability, but also the, the last club he managed at, which ended up being a failure, but there were some very good times there. So I think he sees himself as further up than that, which makes it pretty hard to know. Really. Mm. I, I think he's in a strong position. If he's there for 10 years and he managed to, to tweak the squad so they can compete in the group stages of the, of the Champions League, then they'd be more than happy staying there. The, the, the size of club selling is it's, it's probably underestimated from outside of Scotland. Mm. I'd like to just finish... Um, on one of the talking points of the week, um, the FA's 
a decision they've got to take about selling Wembley. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a good idea? Depends where the, the, the money goes, that's, that's, that, uh, where they reinvest the money, of course. Well, they're talking about it being ring-fenced for grassroots football. Mm. Well, if, if that's the case and they've got a clear, uh, a clear plan of, of how they're going to direct those funds, then uh, all well and good. But uh, it makes you wonder what was the point of, uh, of it all in the first place. Mm. The, the, this idea that I saw someone saying, you know, what next? But Buckingham Palace. This idea that that, that Wembley is this national treasure to me is nonsense. Slightly farcical, yeah. Because the, you know, firstly, it has only been private, privately owned before 1999, and secondly, this is this is not the old Twin Towers anymore. This is a very new stadium, a very new entertainment complex. Uh, I have no issue with selling it exactly as David says, as long as that money is ring-fenced. And not just ring-fenced, but actually before the sale goes through, there is a very detailed blueprint of what will happen next. Because it's quite easy to see, with very cynical head on, how money gets lost in a black hole when we don't see every day how things are spent. And, and also when this is a very long-term thing. Um, but if it can safeguard the future of, of grassroots football, then, then it's a no-brainer. Mm. Well, if Ken Bates and Dave Richards are against it, I'm all for it. Our children need places to play. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>